0: with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakeables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Co. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Pushkin. This is talk easy i'm sam fragoso welcome to the show hey everyone i hope you and yours have made it safely to your destination if you're not traveling i hope you're enjoying the couch as much as i am today on the show We've put together our annual holiday special. We've been doing this since the podcast began back in 2016, and it's really just an excuse to talk to some people who came on the show in 2022. But this year, we're also raising money for the good people at the Audre Lorde Project. Named after the titular feminist, poet, and activist, the ALP is a Brooklyn based community organizing center for LGBTQ. 2S Plus People of Color. Their programs include educational events, social justice activism, and wellness and healing workshops. And so, to support the work they do, we'll be donating 100% of the proceeds from our store through December. If you'd like to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream and navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz. you can do so at talkeasypod.com shop. We've also included a link to the store in the description of this episode. If you'd like to learn more about the Audrey Lord Project, be sure to visit their website at alp.org. That's alp.org. In the aftermath of the horrific shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs, we wanted to support programs like the ALP that protect and advocate for these often targeted communities. Every donation that you make, no matter how small, really does ensure that this invaluable organization continues doing the work they've been doing since the mid-90s. To all those listening and supporting, I just want to thank you in advance for pitching in and showing up. As for today, I asked every person you're about to hear from the same two questions. First, after the last couple years of this pandemic, what are your plans for the holidays? The second question, which I think everyone actually answered, what deeply moved you in 2022? I wanted to hear reflections on a film, a book, an album, a TV show, a political demonstration, an act of kindness, whatever it was, something that they wanted to bring with them into this next year. As always with these holiday specials, you'll hear a mix of voicemails and phone calls. You'll hear from Pulitzer Prize winning critic, Margot Jefferson, New York Times reporter Ested Herndon, poet Rupi Kaur, and many, many more. But first, to lead us off, we have the director of not one, but two new films this year, including Sharpstick and Catherine Called Birdie, both of which you can stream over the holidays. This is Lena Dunham.
2: Hello, Lena Dunham here talking to the beloved listeners of Talk Easy, one of my favorite cultural institutions. I'm here in London for the holidays. First time getting a Christmas tree, not with my parents. I only have six decorations, all of them in shades of pink or purple, and my cats already seem to have torn them down. But um, something that really moved me this year is the retrospective of Jimmy DeSanta's work at the Brooklyn Museum. Jimmy DeSanta was an incredible photographer, artist, who died of AIDS in 1990. He also happened to be my mother's best friend and a very, very big part of my life until I was four years old. And when he passed away, my mother took over his estate. And it took her 32 years to make sure that his work got into the right hands so that people could take it in in its entirety But now that it's in the Brooklyn Museum, people are really able to experience the breadth of what he did, the way he talked about the body and sexuality and queerness and disease and feeling unseen and feeling voyeuristic and things that are sexy and things that are scary. And I also realized how much his work formed my aesthetic just growing up around it. And it's also for me a really moving testament to this friendship of my mother's and the beauty of friendships between gay men and women and what a kind of like important historical entity that is. Platonic friendships between, you know, queer men and straight women, platonic friendships between everyone. Any platonic non sexual friendship is a beautiful and amazing thing in this world. I'm grateful that that's in the world and you can see it at the Brooklyn Museum until later this year. Love to everyone at Talk Easy. Keep it easy. Hi, this is Rupi Kaur.
3: For the last couple months, I've been following along with the protests happening in Iran and I feel so moved and so speechless. It's hard to put it into words because I see images and videos of these young girls, the youth of Iran, just facing this violent regime and facing it with so much strength and continuing to march forward despite the hundreds of people being killed and arrested and tortured. Here in the West, we have so much privilege. I can't even imagine the bravery and resilience that is moving through them right now. Could you imagine being 16 years old and facing a violent regime and protesting, knowing that it probably will cost you your life, your family's life? Yeah, so I think about that often, especially when I'm on tour and I'm performing on stage. I think about those young girls.
1: That was from poet Rupi Kaur. Her latest collection, Healing Through Words, is available wherever you do your reading. You can also see her on tour in 2023. To find links to all of that and more, visit our website at talkeasypod.com. Next up, we have a professor at Columbia, a Pulitzer Prize-winning critic, and the author of the new book, Constructing a Nervous System. Margot Jefferson. Let's give her a call. Hello?
4: Yes, hello. Hi. Hello, is this Sam? Is this Margot Jefferson? Yes, it is, it is Margot Jefferson speaking to Sam for set,
1: Okay. Oh my God, I, I've missed you. You know, I have to say, <laughs> I don't usually say that to past podcast guests. <laughs>
4: Uh, But I appreciate, I appreciate, I take it. I do, I do, I do. Um, Yes, memory is a good thing, Sam. Happy memories are a good thing.
1: You know, that sounded so much more romantic than I meant it, but...
4: It just sounded winning.
1: (laughs) How are you doing? (laughs)
4: I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. The holidays are always a little much, I, you know, yeah. But I'm I'm rising to many occasions, more than I would like to.
1: What does that look like, those many occasions?
4: Some of it just looks like dutiful presents for people. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no office parties, I'm happy to say.
1: You and I were both a little bit sick this past weekend. Yes. You mentioned that you've been swimming in a kind of viral playground, I think is what and you And
4: workspace, I call it, <laughs> right. And, yes. and
1: workspace.
4: That's where I was, paddling through with my head aloft.
1: <laughs> okay. So as you've been paddling through, how has uh, the swimming been this fall teaching at
4: Columbia? You know, it hasn't. Been viral. Um, I haven't been paddling through viruses. I think this is not just Columbia. This this weird intensity. Um, since we were ostensibly out of COVID, it's the intensity of being quote natural again, you know, which was like two years ago, and also all of us being a little manic because here we are. So it, it was um, a little high pitched for all oh, for all of us. It's it's like some performer, you know, who just keeps. Getting a little louder than necessary, <laughs> we all were. Normality is taxing. It just <laughs> right, isn't it? Getting back to normality. Um, it looked like if you were directing actors or setting a scene, you would say, you know, bring it down just a little. <laughs> uh, don't want the audience to feel you're forcing things. Right. It was sweet in its way, um, but it just that slightly excess on all of our parts. <laughs> yeah, we were all very susceptible got to little, little tiny manias.
1: Did you feel like you were dropping back into your 20-year-old self that wanted to perform on stage?
4: Well, that little self is always kind of there, yeah. Sure, I think probably because we were all students and... Teachers so high pitched. I tended to need more rests from it than I usually do. You have to get used to being first choice out in the world much more regularly than for two years you were. Let me ask
1: you, big picture. Big has, picture. Has has. <laughs>
4: big picture. Yeah, that's my big picture voice. I, yeah.
1: I really wish you could just follow me around in my life and just sort of repeat. Everything I say, but but in your voice.
4: <laughs> it, it's, it's That could be performance art.
1: Do you remember Key and Peel?
4: Oh, God, yes.
1: They did the Obama. The Obama, t- the, t- the,
4: yes, the, the anger channeler and, and <laughs> the other one.
1: Yeah, I think ours would just be like the smarter, more educated version would come from you. And I would just sort of be flapping around.
4: No, no, I think the spontaneous, more improvisatory version would come from you and then maybe the more academic uh, version but you know we're both good at improvising actually <laughs> um, as i learned it in our conversation yes we're doing it right now and yes we are that's exactly right but you know what's sad about key and peel poor little keys little career has kind of tanked
1: Hmm.
4: why do you think that is well listen he didn't want to be a filmmaker like Jordan Peele did. I mean, that's you want to be a filmmaker, to step into that mega master and perhaps mistress zone. That's a big deal. Maybe he didn't quite know what he wanted, and then he kind of got
1: passed over. I think you're right. And I think part of that, this is definitely away from our big picture conversation, but his attempt at being a sort of um, dramatic actor with a capital D. Yes,
5: Yes,
4: yes, yes, yes.
1: Has never really worked, at least for me. I, some people listening may disagree, but I never quite get there with him. And, and I never get the sense that he quite gets there with himself.
4: I agree with you. It's not embarrassing. It just isn't quite compelling.
1: And maybe the more accurate description is, is almost seeing a friend that has suddenly decided to mute a part of themselves that was previously their kind of guiding light.
4: You know, I think it's true. If you have reservations about, um, you know, get out and nope and whatever, he's the wattage is there. You know, he's 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 still on the prowl, on the hunt, trying for some real expression, real expressions of, of his passion.
1: Now, I'm curious, did you see nope this year before we I talk about something that, that that you want to bring into 2023? What did you make of nope?
4: You know, I was a little wearied by Nope because it was so full of genre stuff that everyone says he was handling brilliantly. But a a lot of it was genre stuff that as a young thing, um, meaning even a child, um, you know, I had grown up with and was a little tired of. It was complicated. I knew he was complicating things, but I kept getting a little bored.
1: I think you and I may be two of 14 people in this country. (laughs) That feel the exact same way about this movie.
4: Oh, thank goodness. I did go with a friend who who fortunately was as baffled and somewhat discontented as I. Um, They're part of the 14. She's one of the 14. That's exactly right. Yes. And it's not something one... Let's put it this way. One is careful talking about it in public.
1: Or on a podcast.
4: Or on a podcast. That's exactly right. This is not going into into 22 pleasures, but no one will think it's because I wasn't pleased. They'll just think, oh, they had other things to talk about.
1: Why don't we talk about one of those things? What did stir you in 2022? A, A film, a book, a poem, a show, an album, a political demonstration, whatever you want to talk about. I'm here.
4: You know, a funny mix of things that all seem to have to do with styles and genres and traditions and legacies kind of crossing and cross-fertilizing in interesting ways. Like I taught Annie Erno's Happening, which is the book about the abortion she had as a college university student in 1962 or three. I was teaching it, of course, to um, undergraduates who had, you know, the legend of abortion was faint, the legend of illegal abortions and the horrors and the terrors and the guilts was very faint. And the particulars, the specifics, this intense chronicle of memory and physical, you know, facts. I mean, the the fetus comes out looking like a doll that she dangles, these things that you can't avoid. And to see them take it up, take it in, merge it with what they knew, what they'd experienced, what was very, very hard. As one student said, you know, we talk about abortion rights all the time, but an actual abortion, I've I've never seen it described. For we second wave feminists,
2: they were described
4: all the time. And they were, they came at it, they entered it. And I, I found that very moving in a way rather akin to these demonstrations that are not kumbaya, but that are genuinely varied and asking things of you, asking you to not just be righteous, but to extend your experience and maybe to risk being a little naive or foolish, but trying.
1: Not just righteous, but maybe to quote your book, Constructing a Nervous System, and maybe even a little chagrined?
4: Maybe, yeah. But you can be a little chagrined when you're in a kind of political or social or even kind of literary world universe, and you're not exactly at the center of it. You know, you you matter, your support matters, but you're not necessarily the star. There were some people who I remember were kind of angry or irritated by Stacey Abrams's voter registration campaign. And because she kept asking, we all know Stacey Abrams is passionately interested in Black people. She kept saying also, who are the other minority communities that we can reach? You know, I'm just as interested in LGBTQ. In some Black quarters, there was a little pushback. And I thought, okay, Stacey, good. Yeah. Stretch it out. It's, it's when anybody, as, as I guess people used to say about acting, when you can stretch your range, you know, <laughs> when you can respond and perform in ways that, um, you know, you weren't perfectly trained in, but you train, you get trained or you train yourself.
1: Well, She stretched her range to the point of co-starring in an episode of Star Trek.
4: Oh, my God. Did she really? Stacy? That
1: is true. That is true. I didn't
4: know. Oh, okay. Stacy said, <laughs> top of the world, Ma. Oh,
1: okay. It was a lifelong dream. But I'm curious, what did you make of, of her run down in Georgia, where she lost to Governor Kemp, and then just a month later, Senator Warnock beat Herschel Walker?
4: That I found hard to watch, because you can't, in that situation when you're appearing on television, not be the slightly left behind Utre, oh, this is yesterday's news. I actually thought she handled it well by continuing to emphasize what the larger purpose had been. Now, was it her larger purpose entirely in her heart of hearts? (laughs) I'm sure it did not absolutely surpass her wanting to win herself. But she stayed focused, she stayed calm, she did not as she had the first time you know reasonably do big attacks um at Kemp. She attacked him, but it was not quite as one on one focused, and I think that was her her performer's realization her politician' performer's realization that that it wouldn't have worked in the same way, losing a second time, and with Warnock winning somehow or another, she had to be a stateswoman looking to the future. And she actually managed to do that and reminding us without saying it that it wouldn't have happened without the work she'd done.
1: And yet some part of me thinks of her and can't help but feel a little crestfallen that she is not going to, at least in the immediate, benefit from the fruits of her labor.
4: I could not agree more. Crestfallen is absolutely right. This is what I'm talking about has to do with the elegantly compensatory and the ensuring the best for your legacy um, in terms of how you perform and what you remind people. I am definitely crestfallen. She, I mean, God bless. The <laughs> so gods bless Reverend Warnock, but she deserves this <laughs> every bit as much as he or herself. Yeah. So, what she will do next, I'm, you know, they're the children's books. I don't know. I am not quite sure how she'll map that out.
1: We hope it extends beyond. Uh... The children's books.
4: Yeah, we so, we so hope. Yes, we do. And we hope that whatever role is appropriate that she gets picked rather than, say, Kamala Harris, who is, was more glamorous and, oh, God, should I be saying this? It should be recorded. Sees the national spotlight in a different kind of almost more old fashioned way.
1: What would be the fear of saying that publicly?
4: It's easy to sound a little bitchy when you, <laughs> if you're another black woman who says you're not really satisfied with Kamala Harris. And um, in terms of her presidential ambitions, probably never were. You know, I've had people say, well, what's the matter with, you know, come on, she's really smart. <laughs> and then I end up saying things like, well, she's a sorority girl. And I, <laughs> I chose not to do that. And then I realized I've fallen into the trap. <laughs> you know,
1: you know. I miss her. I don't know where she's been, Miss Harris.
4: Nobody quite does. But I'm assuming, you know, Biden has made choices about what she's not given. Yeah, they're not they're not a great match, right? No. Now it's time for what did Brina Paltrow call her divorce? Um, a conscious uncoupling. Is, right? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: and, 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 and as you know, President Biden is a massive fan of goop. So, I think he's going to I, listen to that.
4: I think I think he will take that to heart. That's right
1: <laughs> by the way if, if President Biden spent some time with goop it w- it would do wonders for him. I'm going to tell you right now.
4: you know actually, they could manage a makeover of various sorts they could they could take all levels
1: they could take all and this is generally true of of white people over fifty <laughs> just more moisturizer. <laughs> it's true <laughs> people listening are gonna be like did they have three drinks
4: before recording thank you exactly early in the day did they did they remember what the subject was
1: well you know I'm gonna bring us back because
4: we're gonna bring it back uh, and I'm gonna follow you okay
1: <laughs> you mentioned earlier that conversation you were having in the aftermath of Roe v Wade and that reference to second wave feminism which you were a part of and I think That's something I want to talk about for a second, because, as you know, this year we're raising money for the Audre Lorde Project.
4: Yes, indeed.
1: Which is, uh, as they say on their website, a community organizing center for lesbian, gay, bisexual, two-spirit, trans, and gender non-conforming people of color. Now, I'm curious, in the early to mid-70s, when you and June Jordan and others formed a feminist group called The Sisterhood. The Sisterhood, yes. How much of that work was at least a little bit inspired by Audrey's work?
4: You know, no one was unaffected by Audrey. For um, white feminists, the analog would probably be Adrienne Rich. You know, they were both inescapable. (laughs) They were there. They were ubiquitous. They were poets. They were both queer. They were organizers in their way. Um, So, yeah, if anything, she was she already had a kind of heroine status, certainly by the mid 70s.
1: Do you have any sort of specific memory of her or, or that time in the community?
4: Well, a specific memory of her, not particularly except seeing her read. And she was. In an interesting way, almost declamatory. It was almost like a heroine and say um, an ancient drama would speak. That's what I remember. And I was impressive. Yeah. But that's my only like personal here's who she is memory. Otherwise, it was, you know, I was reading her, citing her. We knew she was a leader. The thing about the sisterhood that was exciting, you know, just apart from you know, each meeting, where, you know, which was the combination of seriousness and frivolity and gossip and politics, was that it was another way, another mark that black feminism was absolutely here and going forward. We've taken our space and we're going to be taking more.
1: We talked so much in our first conversation about that feminism of the mid 70s. And relating to the feminism of 2022. And I guess as we leave this year, I'm curious how you're thinking about these last 12 months, uh, not just for women, but, you know, for this country. Big questions that you're thinking about.
4: Yeah, um, really, you know, can, can with country. It's a given. It's a so-called truism from our sort of liberal politicians, but even some people who consider themselves more radical, more progressive, the legacy of what is good and how we hold on to that. And, you know, sometimes I think to myself, the arc of history isn't bending towards justice in in this country necessarily. Um, We is not the word I should use, but we tend as a country all our disparate elements to somehow think that we'll pull it off, you know, that um, maybe we aren't quite as full of hatred and venom and fear and terror, um, all, you know, powered by economics as well as, of course, gender and race, etc. But I hadn't realized until these events starting last January, that even thinking of myself as little Miss 60s, you know, please, you can't outdo my generation for political action and, and anger and uh, cynicism about the power structure. Um, I was shocked somehow to my core, or at least to one part of it. And I am still angry and fearful the need, so nurtured by the worst and very central parts of America, the need to despise, to punish, to protect yourself, to regress. You know, I'm thinking now of books and the censorships, to regress into this kind of thing you call innocence, which is, in fact, poisonous ignorance. It's so strong. It's so intense. And it's so... I don't think I've fully realized, again, until... Trump's performance style emerged, followed by the really kind of jinks of these Republican right-wingers. You know, they're playful. They're jaunty. These people are having the time of their life in a weird way. I know they're suffering or they wouldn't be acting out. I know there's some emotional, psychological pleasure they're getting out of it. It's almost a frolic, the frolic of racism, of, of misogyny, of hatred of, um, of immigrants. The contempt, the need to be able to not just look down on them, but act again. It's always been here, but it's, it's, it's like intersectional now, right?
1: I guess the question I have then is, what do these hijinks do to you? Do they make you want to outpace them or, or do they force you to retreat back into your work?
4: Well, verbally, of course, I can always attack back. I'm not going to switch to one because you asked me directly you marshal your forces, you think about the parts of history, um, you know, that do, that matter, that do bend towards justice. And, you know, I'm alive, so i got to do something. But I am also a little shocked at how much it seems to take out of me. I thought, okay, you had a sheltered life in some ways, but there's just no escape from it now and i don't mean literally in terms of how i live my life but in terms of how it permeates the media and and all the talks one has with people and even once and of i think i've gotten more self-conscious more wary of you know who's looking at me and what what mm, could that person be a little terrorist from upstate yeah
1: from upstate oh my god
4: yeah could well, yeah. <laughs> be from upstate a little proud boy sympathizer. Uh, These are not things I love in myself, but um, they. I, I, I get it. These are all the the modes of self-protection, but I don't want to stay there. And I would like to figure out how to write more directly politically, maybe. I think that should be something I, I pay more attention to.
1: Well, it, it, it's interesting because recently you, you published an essay in the Yale Review in which you wrote, In particular, I'm considering how I write about race, gender, and class, my methods, choices, and intentions, and is about the best word. How I write through is more accurate, through the particulars of my race, my gender, and my social class. How do I present, interpret for myself, then persuade, delight, provoke readers with these particulars? I
4: did write that. Yes, indeed. (laughs) I was very thoughtful, very disciplined. Um, You know, once you write it, once you go through, once you live up to writing it, you have to live up to living it, right?
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah,
4: you do. You got to.
1: (laughs) I guess on that note, as we leave, I'm curious, what does Margot Jefferson do for the holidays? What are your plans? Do you stay in New York?
4: Oh, I do stay in New York, yes. And Marga Jefferson um, gets to, like, plays or movies or streams movies or art exhibits or whatever that she hasn't done that she's been putting off. She streams TV shows. She goes to the friends who have the biggest TVs. <laughs> she, she meets people in pretty restaurants. It's my own way of frolicking.
1: That's right. Take enjoyment where you can find it. My dear, exactly.
4: I just caught up with a new young jazz singer that I like, Samara Jewelry. I like these musicians who are, got all the virtuosity. They really are taking what their models, people they worship, their ancestors did, and they really are listening for and finding their own way of doing it and taking it elsewhere. It's, I, I like it a lot. It's as if they've got extra pairs of ears.
1: I love that. By the way, what kind of a uh, gift giver are you?
4: Um, I'm a combination of, depending on the person, I will ask what they want because I know they will not be satisfied unless they get what they want. Or I will imagine what I think will please them or surprise them. And that really does depend on the friend.
1: And as a receiver of gifts?
4: Um, well, I'm, I'm never rude.
1: Oh my God.
4: <laughs> Even if I do even if I don't get what I want, I, I get happy. I get happy when I get what I want or what I didn't expect. And it mm-hmm. turns out I do want it. Or it means that somebody saw something about me or in me that I was taking for granted. And this little gift kind of says, don't take it for granted. Here it is. That makes me happy.
1: Now I know I, I'm not sending you any gift. There's, there's no chance now.
4: <laughs> you know, I'm sorry to hear that. I I thought it might be coming, but no. Okay, no gift.
1: No, it was coming. I I'm just fearful. Now I'm just fearful. Oh don't
4: you <laughs> it was, but not now. Margo, you talked yourself out of the gift, you persnickety creature. Okay. <laughs> persnickety Margo. She just lost a gift.
1: Okay. Uh, you know, here's a gift. A gift is that it has been such a joy to do this show this year. I've done 52 episodes. Whoa. That's a lot of episodes.
4: That's, yes, that's a lot of work.
1: And I'll tell you, I'm I'm not playing favorites, but I have so enjoyed spending time virtually together in conversation. You are such a, a beacon of light in a time that is undoubtedly tumultuous, scary, and vexing. And I think you make things comprehensible to all of us. So I thank you for that.
4: Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, you're just really a terrific host because it, you, the complexities of you as a human being are right there. And also you're lots of fun.
1: Well, you know, I try to do both. Here's something I hope happens in 2023. Oh, please. I hope I come to New York City and uh, we get to finally talk not on screens or really on microphones, if, if we can have it our way.
4: Absolutely. Consider it done.
1: Beautiful. You know what? I'll send you the gift.
4: (laughs) Oh, generous boy. Generous lad. (laughs) Send me the gift.
1: Margot Jefferson, I wish you love. I wish you a happy holidays. And uh, I'll see you next year.
4: Right back to you. Bye.
1: That was the great Margot Jefferson. You can find her new book, Constructing a Nervous System, wherever you do your reading. Next up, we have another pulled surprise-winning author whose new book, The Candy House, is a perfect gift for, I don't know, just about anyone who enjoys the written word. She's one of my favorite working authors, Jennifer Egan.
6: My name is Jennifer Egan, and a cultural experience I had in 2022 that was meaningful and that I found myself thinking about Uh, is an exhibit called Matisse in the 1930s that is actually still up at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and will be through January. And what I loved about this exhibit, it's sort of idiosyncratic. It talks about how in the 1930s, Matisse uh, was very famous, but actually was in a kind of creative slump. And in that moment, he was commissioned to make a large mural at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia, so he came and he began working on that, and it was a larger scale than he had worked in before. And he had trouble conceptualizing it at, at that scale, so he began making cutouts of the figures he was working with. They were dancers, and in fact, the mural is called The Dance, and it's, it's a famous uh, piece of Matisse's he began making cutouts of these figures so that he could place them at a distance and get a sense of how the mural would look. And that workaround of creating these cutouts actually became a whole new aesthetic direction for Matisse. And I think many of us would recognize Matisse's cutouts maybe more quickly than anything else Matisse has done. So what I loved about that exhibit and that insight was that it reinforced so many things that I think about creativity, that very often we are problem-solving even when we don't know it. And sometimes a solution to one problem can also contain the solution to another problem. And in this case, a practical solution to the problem of working on a larger scale than Matisse was used to led to a whole new aesthetic direction and a way out of these creative doldrums that he found himself in. So that was a really thrilling exhibit, and it was a a wonderful cultural experience of 2022 for me. Happy holidays.
5: This is Hiro Morai, and I'm spending my holidays uh, at home in LA. It's my favorite place to be during the holidays because no one's from here so everybody leaves and the city becomes a very quiet place. I also haven't been home a lot for the last two years so I've taken the time over the holidays to really get reacquainted with the city. To to that end, um, I'm reading this book called Writing Los Angeles, a Literary Ethology. Uh, it's a collection of short stories and essays by you know, like 40 different writers, you know, like a Raymond Chandler short story or an essay by Joan Didion, or there's a piece by Robert Towne from Chinatown. When you read it back to back, it kind of feels like a, a pointillist portrait of this very weird city. The other thing I've been reading, which I, I probably don't need to endorse on this podcast, is George Saunders' new book, uh, which has been such a lovely gift to revisit his voice and his worldview again.
1: That was from Hiro Morai. He's the director of many episodes of the show Atlanta, which just came to a close on FX after six beautiful years. Next up, we have Ested Herndon, He's a political reporter at The New York Times and the host of the excellent podcast, The Run-Up. Let's give him a ring. Hello? Hi. Instead, after a long year of tirelessly covering the 2022 midterms <laughs> for The New York Times... I was told that you finally got to go on vacation uh yeah let 's start here. How was it? Did it resemble white Lotus in any way?
7: <laughs> I did think about white Lotus a couple times, but luckily not a ton. I was in Colombia for um two weeks. My girlfriend is a Colombian-American. And so I was meeting a lot of family, cousins, aunts, uncles. So, like, it was work of a different sort. <laughs> but at only at some points did it resemble vacation because, you know, I was at threat of American embarrassment at every point.
1: Basically, what you're saying is if you think covering politics for the times is hard
7: right <laughs> try meeting
1: my girlfriend's family yeah
7: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. try try to make yourself not look like a jerk above your girlfriend's family <laughs> while being a very below average spanish speaker both of those things were contending but we it was a really lovely time they were, it was really nice so i appreciate you asking it was a it was a necessary detachment but it was a good time
1: you two are still together right
7: We are. We are. We are. So at the minimum, I didn't mess it up that much.
1: (laughs) Before we talk about your holiday plans, which I want to get to, I thought it may be a good time to assess how you've been thinking about this year in American politics as we end 2022. Yeah. On the uh, season finale of your podcast, The Run-Up, you said, the midterms have left both parties in a moment of reflection. For Democrats, it's about how much of their future is inherently tied to Republicans. And for Republicans, it's a level of introspection similar to what they faced after their loss in 2012. Mm -hmm. When they concluded that the country was changing and the party wasn't changing with it. Now, this week for you has been uh, season two kickoff for the run up. How are you thinking about these prompts for each party as we end the year?
7: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think that it's a hard kind of political time because at one place you have the parties really looking backward more than forward. I mean, you have the Republicans who are looking at those midterm results and saying that they have a Donald Trump problem that's kind of undeniable among a certain slice of the electorate. And you have a Democratic party who's really feeling good about the ways it was able to message in battleground races about the threats to democracy but still has a whole bunch of bad signs themselves, still has a downturn in Black turnout, still has not won over a bunch of Latino voters in key places, and it didn't really see a big boost among young people that they wanted to see. And so for us, the way we're thinking about it is, I don't want to leave those democracy questions behind. Those weren't just based in the November midterms and are really going to be forced to the forefront in the presidential election. But the key question for us is like, That's a primary driven thing. Mm. And so we need to really understand how Republicans are thinking about themselves and how Democrats are thinking about themselves before we get to the question of how they view the country. And so, you know, as we're kicking off what we're going to try to do in the first half of next year, it's going to be a lot less about how does America see itself and more about like how do we arm people with the right tools to view the 2024 race. Because the big questions that we need from that race are not gonna happen in the next six months. The key part is that things are gonna happen, though, that do inform that race, and how do we give people the tools to see that?
1: What tools are you imagining?
7: Well, I don't wanna give away our secrets here, but I feel like, um, you know, I, as someone who covered presidential cycle before, I remember about how in the early stages of the race, so much of what new candidates are doing are focused on donors, are focused on activists, are focused on people who aren't don't end up having to matter in the end of the day. And so one of the things we're going to try to do is show how donors affect things, how activists affect things. What are the things that people aren't thinking about that are going to end up mattering in 2024? What are the court cases that are going to come down this year that'll shape the presidential race next year? And so I guess we're trying to sift through the noise with the understanding that the things that people talk about the most at this time, you know, whether Ron DeSantis is ahead of Donald Trump, aren't really good questions to ask. Because when the rubber reads the road on that, it's going to be a long time from now. What are the things that are happening right now that are actually relevant?
1: Well, right now, you mentioned uh, a court case. Mm -hmm. There's Moore versus Harper in the Supreme Court, which uh, is really a question around how elections should be run and and may be run in state legislatures. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that?
7: I mean, it's hard to say before, but this is a case that could empower state legislatures to have a much larger role in our election decisions than before. And we have to remember that state legislatures are not reflections of the states that they're in. In a lot of states state legislatures are gerrymandered to just give a party much larger control than they would have otherwise. And that's especially true in purple states where Republicans have really succeeded in resting the Wisconsin's and the Ohio's uh, closer to their side, even though the public is kind of 50 50 in those states. So this Supreme Court case has the potential to have a really big impact where the Supreme Court, which we know has been largely appointed by Republican presidents, could now empower These state legislatures, which have a big conservative lean, to have a bigger say in our democracy and in terms of um, being the final voice for elections. And so I think it's an open-ended question because the courts could go in a lot of different directions. It could not have a full ruling on certain stuff. But we do know that the potential impact of further empowering state legislatures, whether that's in policy on the state front or from the Supreme Court on the democracy front, has a real effect of distorting the public's input in our politics. Because state legislatures, maybe more than anything, maybe even more than Congress, are completely insulated often from responding to the public's concerns.
1: My last political question, then we'll move on. Even in talking about this Supreme Court case, I think the political conversation often tends to orbit around the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. It, it, It seems... We talk about the GOP more than the left. and I just want to have a quick conversation about the left on the heels of Senator Warnock beating Herschel Walker in Georgia, mm-hmm. and now Senator Kristen Cinema announcing her departure from the Democratic Party. How are you seeing Democrats at the end of 2022 going into 2023?
7: Yeah, I think one of the reasons that we end up talking about Republicans more is that they have a more cohesive kind of story that I think is a little easier to tell for Democrats, I really think they've been in a state of flux since the 2016 election and they don't have a kind of unified vision. I mean, I would say that President Biden has led them through a kind of anti-Trump vision and that has really worked out for them. That has won them key races. But at the same time, I think the two senators you lay out are really good examples of differences among the party right now. Those are two swing states, right, Georgia and Arizona. And you have a pretty staunch liberal in Reverend Warnock, who's been able to create an individual brand in that state, who has been able to straddle the line between progressive and moderate, who has been able to win over suburban white Republicans to win in those key races and has not really had to go to Congress, as you would consider a centrist senator from a centrist state. At the same time, you have Arizona, a place where Biden has not won, where Democrats have seen some real success. And you have a senator who kind of perplexingly is not following that path. Now, that could be personality quirks. That can be an individual who wants attention. But we also know that she is trying to reflect what is a growing group of centrist Americans, not Democrats, just Americans, who do not feel represented by either party. So both of these things can be happening at the same time, where you have a Democratic party who's become more comfortable with kind of overt liberalism from a person like Raphael Warnock which we certainly did not have senators from the South, much less black senator, who, who there's not really an analogy to him. But at the same time, you do have a larger group of kind of centrist Americans who have drifted away from either party. And I think that's what Senator Cinema is trying to reflect. Now, is she doing that successfully? <laughs> like, I'm not that sure. But I do think that is what, in the good faith, she is trying to reflect.
1: You know, one of the things you talked about a lot on your show, is that you can't really, especially with this last election, you can't really make big, sweeping, national characterizations of the electorate. The making insights is really localized and changes from state to state. That was one of the lessons I think we learned from the midterms. Mm -hmm. I'm curious for you, as the run-up is poised to return in 2023, Mm -hmm. what did you learn about your work this year? Are there any missteps or miscalculations that you want to not make in the next year of, of your reportage?
7: Yeah, yeah. I think we focused a lot about the bases because I think they were under talked about. And I think that, like, we were showing the ways in which the parties were shifting and how this was going to be an election that was about that shift. And so I think we were right about that. But what we didn't talk about was how people were reacting to that shift. Right. We didn't talk about independence. We didn't talk about swing voters. We didn't talk about your kind of typical midterms voter. We were more so talking about the bases that are driving the parties and driving the type of candidates that we saw. And so I think that we didn't fully prepare people for, quote unquote, results on that night because that wasn't our focus. But I think we did really prepare people for the long term kind of questions about the party, because you can have those results as Republicans did and still not change where they are on a lot of key issues, right? It's not as if Republicans have had this disappointing result and have completely excised the Donald Trump wing of the party. You very much have Marjorie Taylor Greene poised to make more power in this next Congress. And I also think on the Democratic side, we were again talking about the base and and we were using like Obama coalition as a touchstone for that. But the Obama coalition is really dead. And that's kind of what we were proving. And This election was really just another step to that. And I think that we can do a better job of showing what the Joe Biden Democratic Party is in real time, much less than what Democrats have told themselves in the past. That's no longer true.
5: Mm.
1: So around the holidays, since we're in this uh, festive spirit, (laughs) when you're sitting down at the dinner table with your family, do politics ever come up?
7: Yeah, totally. We talk about politics all the time. (laughs) And
1: what is your approach in those conversations, do you play the middle? Do you try to hear all sides? Do you act as a kind of mediator?
7: Well, it's funny because before I was a reporter, I was just a person at that table talking about politics. It's not like how I feel about politics is unclear to the to my family. I mean, my family listens to the podcast and knows what I really mean. You know, I feel like it, it's not as if I have to shift. But I do though, is I take this in all conversations, not just family. It's an opportunity to learn, too. Like, I don't think elections, as we talk about in this show, are really about right and wrong fully. And so I think that the ways, if I just use my family, the ways that older black people come to election is deeply important. I remember my parents telling me, you know, my parents like old time Midwestern black Democrats. I remember them in the twenty and the 2020 presidential primary being really torn, basically flip flopping candidates left and right, blah, 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 blah. And I remember right before the South Carolina debate my dad telling me that Joe just needs me to give me a reason to come on home and like honestly that's the whole election right there is that they did not like people were not able to centralize the most important electorate in Democratic primaries being older black people and that when Joe Biden was able to do that in the South Carolina that kicked off a of super tuesday that changed this whole trajectory and so like to me like those are things I'm learning and so like I really find Value in conversations with family, but like that's true across the board. Like that's true about friends I try not to tell people how to I mean if you have a question about something about politics, I can tell you the facts, (laughs) but I don't think elections are really about that So I don't come to talking to people about elections under the idea that I have the answer
1: Around the table if it ever gets too heated. Have you ever said? Well, you know This is my job
7: (laughs) I feel like it's been funny because um, sometimes they'll say something and I'll be like, you read that in my story. What are you telling me? (laughs) I read this thing in the New York Times. Oh, well, like, I just think this person hasn't reached these people. I'm like, well, how did you find that out? huh?" But no, it's 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 great. And I honestly feel like coming from a family that was always really open and explicit about politics has been really good because, you know, it, it shaped my thinking. And I genuinely believe that in elections and understanding that, like, I have always kind of known the importance of a lot of people who some people say don't matter or have have had to learn who matters later because that's who I was around. And so, you know, the first story I wrote when Joe Biden announced in 2019 was Joe Biden's election will live and die with older black voters. Mm -hmm. And that was true from that day all the way till the end. And like that's something that like I should give a contributing reporting line to my parents, because like I totally know that through them and through the places in which they have helped me shape to learn about politics.
1: For the holidays, what are your plans? Do, do you travel back to Chicago?
7: I was in Chicago for Thanksgiving, which is actually the holiday I care a little more about. Like, I really love Thanksgiving. I'm kind of mid on Christmas. And so um, I'm chilling, on, I'm in New York. My plans are not to really go much of anywhere for Christmas, uh, I will be around cold, dreary New York.
1: What kind of gift giver are you?
7: Oh my God, I'm a horrible gift giver. I actually have to get, it has become a concerted effort to get better because I could not get worse. Why are you so bad? As you can probably tell, I'm like a flighty, like I'm like a person who like, uh, has being pulled a lot of directions and I'm not a great planner, but I'm good in moment, but like whatever, whatever. And so I've always been important for me to like go there for Christmas. But like thinking ahead about what to get them for Christmas like has never been my strong suit. Mm-hmm. But luckily, you know, you have a family that enables your worst behavior. So like <laughs> I've never had like pressure. We're not like a gift giver centric crew. You just have to be there and present and like be a good kid. One, one of the notorious bad gifts I gave my family once is I hadn't bought anything on Christmas Day. That's like five, six years ago. And I go to Walmart and all they had left was a Denzel Washington DVD box set. And I brought it home, and my parents were like, what is this? Like, why? It was horrible. And so literally when I was home last month, my parents were like, as long as it's not a Denzel Washington box DVD set, then you're good.
1: Wait, what, what do they have against Denzel?
7: They have nothing against Denzel. It was just a collection of random Denzel movies. This wasn't like Training Day, Malcolm X, like whatever. This was like... You know, this is like, like man
1: on fire, day. That's what I'm saying, vu, like all the things of these that time. they could stream
7: at any moment if they right. wanted. Like I just was it was a completely thoughtless gift.
1: It was a fleet of action films. I understand. Yes. Okay. Last question for you. We're asking everyone that's part of this holiday special, what stirred or or moved you in 2022? This could be a piece of art, a poem, a book, a film, a show, an album, a political demonstration, something that happened this year that you took in this year that you kind of want to carry into the next?
7: So I began this year, at the beginning of this year, I had still had my torn Achilles and I was like stuck in immobile. I got a DJ set. I got like a turntable so I can do something while sitting down. And one of the things like when Beyonce's Renaissance came out, it really felt like an affirmation of that decision. And like, I really felt connected to the idea that she was in like a carefree dance like transitions the mood and there was like an alignment between where renaissance was emotionally and where i was and the way that i think has stuck with me and then another thing that just recently happened in columbia is like i saw this like soccer match that like moved people to tears in this wild way and it had me thinking a lot about sports and community And like ways we build community and like ways that things last and like what we give meaning to. And I just feel like in pandemic and kind of out of pandemic, I've had a real reshuffling of what I feel like is the power in those things. And like I'm falling re in love with sports, but like as a means of unity and community and culture and so I, I don't know why I thought of renaissance and, like, the broiest thing possible, but I would say those two things.
1: You know what? I love it. Uh, curiously missing were the
7: Chicago Bulls. Yeah, because there's nothing there's nothing to say. It's, it's, it's been <laughs> I, heartbreaking. I've already, I'm just waiting on them to blow it up. Are so we blowing it whenever up? they want to give it, whenever they want to decide <laughs> that this shit is not working, I am ready for them.
1: <laughs> well, you know, politics and, uh, in turn, political reporting can often feel vexing and vacuous and a little bit soulless, but I think you have made meaning out of it throughout this year. And so I, I thank you for that. Thank you. I'll see you next year. A
7: <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: Happy holidays. You too.
8: Hello, my name is James Whitfield. I'm an educator in Texas. And I want to say the thing that's really moved me the most in 2022 is watching young people rise to the occasion. Needless to say, there's been a lot of talk about schools and what's happening in schools, what's not happening in schools, CRT boogeyman, book bans, attacks on LGBTQ students, you name it. There has been a group of people that have been dead set on attacking the institution of public schools. And yes, I've seen families and parents and groups form to combat this nonsense, this foolishness. But I've also seen young people rise to the occasion. And so often our young people don't get the credit that they deserve. You know, we've all heard over the course of our lives uh, here I am, you know, almost forty-five years old, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard, even well, as a kid, kids these days, right? We were the generation that was going to blow it all, right? And as an educator, I hear that constantly. People talking about kids these days, and I say that as well, but in a very different tone. I say, man, kids these days—they are—we we we should be so proud of them. Their willingness to embrace others, their willingness to see somebody that may look differently than them, but not cast them aside, their willingness to invite people to the table, their love for each other, their love for humanity. And I think that's one of the things that scares a particular group of people. They see that young people really see what's on the horizon, and that is a brighter, more inclusive, more just and equitable world for us all and I know that our young people are going to lead the way on on this. I had a chance to go and testify uh, before the Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties back in May of this year, and my favorite part of that was listening to the students that got to testify before me, because all too often, those are the voices that we're missing in this conversation, the students. uh, The students are the ones impacted by the decisions that we're making, so I would hope that more and more people will not just say student voice in air quotes, (laughs) just to have some good talking point, but no, they'll actually listen to what students have to say because they are the ones that are gonna be shaping our future. They are the ones that we're serving at this time. So that has been the thing that has moved me the most, just watching these young people come into their own and really own their beautiful and unique greatness.
1: That was from Dr. James Whitfield. If you have not heard his remarkable story, I encourage you to seek out our conversation with him from earlier this year. It's one of my favorite pieces uh, we've probably ever done on this show. You can find that in our back catalog wherever you are listening to this right now. Also, just a reminder, if you'd like to donate to the ALP, The Audrey Lorde Project, we are selling mugs and vinyl on our website at talkeasypod.com slash shop. That's talkeasypod.com slash shop. 100% of the proceeds will go to the ALP through December. Coming up, if you can believe it, we have one more teacher for you. This one is a middle school teacher out of Chicago, Illinois. He also happens to be my father. Let's give him a call.
9: The you got some authentic, somebody going to the office. Okay, so right now
1: my dad is in his classroom. That was uh, someone from administration calling who into the office?
9: Probably some kid who did something stupid or perhaps parents are looking for them or something, some nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's something, it's some drama that needs to be addressed into the office.
1: I hope it has nothing to do with you.
9: No, no, no. We we we're, we're we're recording. This is we're it. We're recording. This
1: is the show? This this is the show. It's a show about nothing. This should be the show, Jerry.
9: <laughs> this should be the show. This is the show.
1: The show about nothing. <laughs> How long have you been in that classroom?
9: 27 years. That exact room. That exact room. I'm the only one. So, our school opened 27 years ago, and I've been fortunate enough not to move, not to go to another spot. So, when we walked in here, they said, for you have 308. And I've been here ever since.
1: Okay, so tell me, as we near the end of this year, the eighth graders, that's who you teach, the kids are back in class for in-person teaching. How has it been this fall?
9: Well, we're very fortunate because the kids are, are great, but it's been social emotionally for a lot of these kids, COVID is really taking its toll. I've seen it in a bunch of different ways, not so much in their demeanor, but the whole wearing the mask, they're not wearing it because of COVID, they're wearing it because they just don't want to be seen. What do you mean by that? So they go to gym, they got a mask on. They're running around, they got a mask on.
1: Even if they're outside?
9: Even if they're outside. If they are eating, they lift the mask up and then take a bite and put the mask down. It's gotten so bad that, for example, on picture day, I had to because I, I I saw this happening and I saw the girls, their anxiety and I said, OK, guys, let's let's get away from anyone taking a picture. You need to just leave them alone. And so I literally put one at a time. They went to their spot where they need to take the picture with the photographer while everybody else is about 50 feet away because the anxiety that they had of Mr. Gosa, please, they cannot see me. I'm like, OK. <laughs> and that was the only time that they took off their mask. And so that happened. So then when I gave them back their pictures, because it comes in a whole envelope, oh boy, that was an ordeal. What happened? Well, I had to call them one by one. They came up. It was like a secret or something. Everyone knew they were getting their pictures. They got it, and then they ran to their locker to put the, the picture away.
1: It's like you're handing out the Pentagon papers.
9: Yeah. And, you know, I think they most appreciate me not be making a big deal out of it and just continuing through our day. They don't want any attention. These are 13, 14 year olds. So, the social part of it though is is incredible. They're getting along really well. They help each other out. This generation is really amazing. They have a lot of empathy. They're very accepting. It's it that part of it I'm I'm really excited about.
1: So these kids are like 13, 14 years old and they've almost never seen each other's faces. Yes. Has any kid given you an answer as to why that is beyond I'm anxious about my classmates seeing me.
9: That's the answer. So when I'm giving away some masks because a mask rips or whatever, they literally have their hand over their mouth and they're asking me for the mask.
1: Wow. Yeah. You know, with each generation, people always say, you know, when I was coming up, for Mm -hmm. example, they would say, kids are not going outside anymore. They're playing video games. They're not roaming around in the streets of Chicago the way you did with your friends imitating the warriors. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my generation. We're inside playing Halo. Yep. But then you have this generation that's also playing video games while at the same time going to school and interacting with classmates without ever having any kind of real face to face intimacy. Yep. They don't know what each other looks like. And I can't imagine how you lose all the facial cues that you get when you look at someone. Exactly. Not just in the eyes, but see how their face contorts when you say something, how they experience pain, how they experience joy.
9: But there's a there's another layer to what you were just saying. The, the layer, the other layer is the fear. Unfortunately, in my beautiful city, it's a factor. I spoke to the kids just yesterday about this because there was a shooting at that high school right down the street that a bunch of my kids go to Juarez High School. It's all over the news. And I asked them, when you get home from school today, get something to eat, can you just tell your mom or dad, guardian, whoever, can I go to my friend's house? And only like two kids out of 25 rings for hand. So that idea of them just going to their friend's house is not happening and it will not happen. And so my question to them is why? And the answer is because it's not safe. And so they're growing up in a situation where their parents have created this environment of games where it's it's mostly video games and their phone and social media. And you guys had it, but then you were also involved in sports. These poor kids don't even have that. It's like every generation is getting worse with the idea of playing a sport or doing something an outside activity. It's the saddest thing. I don't know if it really affects them having a mask in that because they communicate with each other when they're game, so they don't even see any kind of facial features. Right. But there has to be something in there with with that.
1: It pushes them further into isolation. But on the other side, you feel like they're more empathetic than any students you've had in the
9: past. I've never seen such a beautiful group of kids who are just so accepting of anything and everything. The bullying of, you know, I'm different or your sexual preference or whatever, that's never in question. Not like how I grew up, not in my first two generations of kids that I had. I mean, it was harsh. I had to defend these kids back then. I don't have to defend anybody now. This generation coming, it's gonna be great. I, I, I really envision that. Well, there's a hope anyway.
1: Mm. Well, as we leave 2022, what is something that you want to take with you into the next year? What moved you in the last 12 months?
9: You know, the opening to Will Smith's book, even though I'm not a big fan of Will Smith anymore, but whatever. I mean, he's fine. Whatever. He's, he is who he this is. This is what you want to endorse on the show? Uh, let me tell you something. That opening, which is called The Wall... Has it has nothing to do with Trump. Mm-hmm. I played it for my kids. I played it for myself. Okay. It's 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 amazing.
1: I feel like I'm gonna have to slap you for saying <laughs> that.
9: <laughs> you know, I, I just, I really love that opening scene how he talks about every day you gotta get up and you just gotta put another brick on that damn wall. And you just gotta keep going and it's just perseverance and, and no matter how you feel, it doesn't make any difference. You have to keep getting up and putting another brick. So this job is the same thing there's There's some days where you're just like i don't want, I'm not, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with the drama. I don't want to deal with the bullshit. but what do you do? Grab another brick, put it on that wall. rain, snow, sleet, shine, whatever attitudes it doesn't make any difference. you got to keep bringing it and so i've I've used that. Unfortunately, it comes from a knucklehead <laughs> who, uh, who slapped my favorite comedian, but you know what are you going to do I mean I'll I'll take it wherever it comes. There's a lot of things. What else did you love? Well, you know, it's weird because you actually turned me on to this artist and I didn't know. And then you said that you knew this person. You gave me the name. But then, you know, I just forget. We're driving and I'm listening to this music. I'm like, wow, Joni Mitchell. Wow, this is great. And then it just that's it. It was gone. That was back in August. But then I'm at a record store, as usual. And this record store usually has terrible music. But then this thing comes on and I'm like, oh my God, what what is this? So I, I went up to the counter and there's this kid, real, real sweet kid. <laughs> I kind of scared him. I'm like, who is this? What is this? What is going on here? He got all excited. He's like, let me show you. So he jumps out from behind the counter and he goes and this is Wayless Blood. I'm like, okay, who is this? That's the name of the band. And this is the newest album. I'm like, I want that. But this one's even better. This is... um uh, Titanic Rising, I guess. And I'm like, well, I'll take that too.
1: Talk about burying the lead here. <laughs> the name of the artist is my dear pal, Wiseblood at Natalie Mearing. Yes. And you immediately fell in love with her new record and in the darkness, Hearts Aglow, which, which came out last month.
9: Exactly. And I just was like, oh my God. So then that first song was amazing. The it's not just me, it's everybody. It's everyone, it's every, everybody.
1: Basically a pandemic mantra.
9: Exactly. And I just identified with it so much. It was incredible. The lyrics, the, the way she sang, it was absolutely beautiful. I immediately sent it to you saying, hey, check this out. <laughs> like if I discovered it, right? But it was really like that. And then you sent me a text saying, that's, that's my friend. I'm like, oh my God.
1: Well, I was like, I, I've been playing this for you <laughs> before the record came out. Oh, my God. For months. Yeah. Just kind of being like, oh, you know, take a listen to this. I, I, I like it. I hadn't come out yet. And then you sent it to me like you discovered plutonium.
9: Exactly. So now I've got all basically, well, I'm, I'm missing one of the albums, but it's fine. I have three of them so far and I'm a huge fan. And uh, I've been trying to turn it on to other people who are into it. But unfortunately, you know, my age group... They're not very into new things. And I embrace it because I just love that moment when you hear something and you know you're going to love it. That's so cool. And it doesn't happen often, but it happened that day. And then the show, we went to go see Elton John. That was amazing.
1: That was uh, this past summer. We went to Soldier Field, seeing Elton John on his Goodbye Yellow Brick Road tour. For what I think he said was going to be his final performance in Chicago. When you look at that show now, someone at the end of his career, Yeah. what did you take from that?
9: The idea of giving it your all, he didn't go through the motions. He played those songs like if he was like 25 and he made every moment count. So for me, it's the same thing. I'm not coasting to the end of my career. I'm still being innovative. I'm still involved in all these different things to grow in my, in what I do, you know, I I take that idea of finish strong because I don't want to have any regrets and I also don't want to overstay my, my stay, I guess. You're welcome. Yeah. When it's time, it's time, but I'm, I'm, I'm putting a time on it simply because it's enough, I think. And every year that I work past 60 is every year that I'm taking away from the end of my life. Mm-hmm. If I live to 85, that means I got 25 years. So if I work to 61, that means I got 24 years. That's the way I see it. I want to go out strong and that that's where I am right now. I'm not I'm giving it 110%. Kids are great. I'm I'm blessed. I'm in, I'm in the neighborhood I grew up in and um having a good time.
1: That part always strikes me that you went back and taught at the school that you came of age in and that you're going to end your career there.
9: Yeah, I grew up three blocks away from this spot. In fact, this spot was like factories back in the day. And we used to pass by this factory, this street, on the way to a place that we call Hobo Hills. They were by the train tracks where we would like catch snakes Not, not, and...
1: not, not, not a great name now.
9: <laughs> well, that's what they call it, Hobo Hills. They, they used to live there. You know, there were train tracks, there were snakes. You can get on your bike and like paths and the river's there and it's dirty and it's grimy and it's fun.
1: You know, I got to say, you talking about Hobo Hill with that American flag right above your head. (laughs) It really feels like you're talking at like the CPAC, like GOP conference. That's
9: right. Stop the steal, baby. Look at that thing. Look at that. Look at that flag behind me. Look at that. It's, I can't <laughs> laugh at this. It's so disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta laugh after a while. These people are so stupid. <laughs> but here's the thing about that flag, though. That flag hung over the state capitol here in in uh, Springfield. Uh, Jesse White, who just retired, by the way, who was an amazing secretary of state. He gave it to me.
4: Mm.
9: See, the only thing is I, I would love to have a Mexican flag underneath it, but I can't find a, a the same size because I feel like if I get a, a Mexican flag and it's smaller, that's not going to work out for me. I, I don't no, like it that. No, that doesn't work. No, it doesn't work.
1: It can't be smaller.
9: No, it has to be equal size. So I can't find the damn thing. It can't be bigger? No, not that either. <laughs> I'm still, you know, proud about, you know, American, Mexican, the whole bit. So. Yeah.
1: So basically you're penalizing Mexico Yes. for not having an equally sized flag. Yes. And your response is to have no flag, no representation at all? Well,
9: I, I do have my Chicago flag. I have that hanging.
1: To go on this note of the flag in, in our country, you talked earlier about the students that you have, eighth graders in Chicago, mm. representing this next generation of more empathetic people and i wondered without focusing on the stop the stealers hmm. for a second where you feel like our country is going in 2023
9: i think that we we showed this generation coming up what we can do when we actually use our voice i mean it's supposed to be a red wave it was a trickle right so my thing is i think in the next Eight years, I think it's going to be amazing. And all these people who are, I don't know, baby boomers or whatever, they'll be dead at that point. Jesus. It, hey, I'm sorry. They, <laughs> they, they got to go. So a lot of them who forgot that they were like, you know, hippies or something at one point. or
1: You know, I should have put a disclaimer. <laughs> these Fregoso views do yeah. not represent my own.
9: That's okay. The boomers who who are just in their own way will be gone. And this generation of kids, the 21-year-olds, the ones who showed up this past midterms, are here to stay. So I have a lot of hope. And the way that I see these kids having all this empathy, like I've never seen before, I think they're going to have empathy for the world.
1: I got to say, this is one of the more consciously optimistic takes I've heard. So I like it.
9: I saw what happened during the election, during this midterm. And you know, I... I wasn't buying into this whole thing. And we we spoke about it. Like, I was like, ah, oh, you know, you always said I
1: was wrong. And, you know, I was I was more of a doomsayer.
9: Well, I, I just I like to believe that people are a little bit more. I don't know about smart, but at least understand that most of what's put out there is nonsense. And if they just have a little bit of critical thinking or just being able to decipher the nonsense, they can see through the bullshit. I have hope for that. I don't think everyone's brainwashed, but see, the problem is the brainwashed are the ones who, who are out there really putting it out there more so than we are. We're a little bit more passive, but we're getting sick of that and it's showing up. I thought the time when George Floyd, that whole time, I said, that, that's our time. That's the time when everyone's gonna wake up and we're gonna come together. And then it just, we got even more divided. Yeah, And I couldn't believe it because I really, I saw that time as being just a moment. And those two months, whatever it was, when we were in the streets, mask, no mask, whatever, you know, in the middle of COVID, but then it turned into something else. And then people jumped on it and then changed it, twisted it. It's just, you know, it's sad. It's really sad. But those same people, I think, showed up in the midterms. The ones that marched. Yeah, the ones who marched. Who marched for the right reasons, yeah. But anyway, what about you? What about me? Well, 2023, what's your take?
1: What's my take? What do I want to take into 2023? What moved me this past year? Exactly. So many pieces of art I could talk about. Political demonstrations. I I think some of the rallying that came in the aftermath of um, Club Q, I was moved by. But I don't know, it's it's odd because we've done 52 episodes this year. So this question of what stirred or, or moved me, mm. it's a question that I'm answering every week on the show. Well, it keeps changing. It keeps changing, but our team has to answer that every week by who we book, who we wanna invest time in, yeah, and who we wanna highlight. So the answer to that question You can see it in 52 episodes.
9: All of those people. (laughs) So basically, stay tuned.
1: Basically, you know, check out the back catalog. Although that's an accurate answer. I think one thing that that has genuinely moved me, and it's something I don't ever really talk about on here, is that since we've joined with Pushkin, who's been great, the show has has grown after starting it in 2016. Mm. And from that growth has come so many emails and messages and and notes from people listening. And I have to say, making something 52 times a year can be often exhausting to the point where you don't really know how to keep going. And I guess to bring it full circle, it is like that brick wall where you're putting one brick every day yep. stacked upon each other until there's a wall. And when I don't feel like I can keep doing it, the notes and messages we get from the people that listen to this show, you know, they're the answer. The person listening right now to this is the answer.
9: Exactly.
1: You know, I think sometimes people say that kind of glibly. Basketball players will be like, yeah, we're nothing without the fans. And it's like, yeah. But you know, they also make like $30 million. And I think for us, when you make a show like this, It would be impossible without those notes, that energy, that life force that says what you're putting out into the world is helping me continue to move forward. And so in turn, it does the same for me.
9: So to piggyback on that, I have a book. And in this book right here, there you go. I go through it. It is a bunch of notes from my kids that they give to me. That they say thank you or whatever. And I have all these notes, and I I had a a couple people organize them for me from year to year.
1: Can you show me one of them?
9: Sure. (laughs) Look at this thing. It's beautiful. This was like a little note board that I had, you know, that I would put, hey, these are the assignments, what's going on. These girls, they took it and they got permanent marker, and they said, I'm sorry, Ms. Ragoso, but. We're going to ruin this thing, but because we need to write something and I don't want to put it on paper, it's going to be on this. And I read it. I have it right beside me. I look at all these things and I understand why I'm here.
1: All right. So what did they write?
9: Let's see. Uh, you're an awesome teacher. Um, you uh, you took us where other teachers wouldn't go. Real honest. You always had our back. And there's no way that I can ever forget you. It just goes on and on. It's um it's beautiful. This is back 2013. You read that and and something happened. Yeah, you know, it's it's what happens in your damn show. Everyone fucking cries. Jesus Christ. It's insane. The hell. Every show, man. <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful thing, I gotta say. Um No, I I just, I look at that and I realize, wow, I didn't realize how, that's almost 10 years ago. And it seems like yesterday. So I just think, oh, wow, this is going to be over soon. And then I think about these young ladies who wrote it and what are they doing now? Because at this point, they're 24, 25 years old. They have hopefully their career, everything's happening for them. So I fill myself with this when those days when you think you're just not doing it right and then you realize, no, something's happening, it's okay. You know, after 14 funerals of kids that I've gone to of getting killed because of gang violence and drug abuse and nonsense and even suicide, there comes a point where I fill myself with the goodness, the good parts, because if not, then I'm gonna be jaded and I don't want that.
1: So maybe that is the answer to both of our prompts both for your last three years of teaching and uh, for this next year of the show, to avoid your heart getting calcified, to avoid becoming jaded. Yep. Find the goodness and uh, hold on to it.
9: Every moment. And then if there's a moment where it's not there, then you find the next moment.
1: Well, I have enjoyed uh, this moment with you. Thank you for uh, coming on our, our holiday special. Yep. Yep. Sounds good. Yep. Yep. Sounds good. I
9: don't know what else to say.
1: That's the closing from my father. Uh, yep. Yep. Sounds
9: good. I'm not going to be the only one in this damn show, am I? No. Oh, thank God. But,
1: but, but <laughs> you're, you're, you're the only one I'm correcting. Can you, t- we had, we had a great end. I found the end. I know that was Do good you end. see
9: this? It was a good end.
1: We, we you thought we were going to do a show about nothing. And then it turned into a show about something
9: it's still about nothing really i mean it's it's just oh my god (laughs) dad
1: i love you happy holidays i'll see you soon
9: love you buddy take care
1: our show. I want to give a special thanks to all those who made today's episode possible. Lena Dunham, Jennifer Egan, Hiro Murai, Margo Jefferson, Rupi Kaur, Ested Herndon, Dr. James Whitfield, and of course, my father, Miguel Fragoso. You can check out those episodes with each of those people at talkeasypod.com or wherever you listen. If you enjoyed today's holiday special, Be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, wherever you are listening to this right now. To find more Pushkin podcasts, download the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your podcasting. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. Once again, if you want to make a donation to the Audrey Lord Project, you can do so by purchasing one of our mugs or our record with Fran Lebowitz at talkeasypod.com shop. 100% of the proceeds from this fundraiser will help support their programs. And if you'd like to learn more about their work, be sure to visit their website at alp.org. That's alp.org. And finally, I want to give a very, very special thanks to our team, working over this holiday week. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck, illustrations by Krisha Shenoy, video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, Dave Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarrez, Maya Koenig, Carl. Charlie Migliori, Jason Cambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. As always, thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back with new episodes come January. Until then, happy holidays, happy new year, stay safe, and so long. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
0: Smart journalism, fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.